0: My page, ready? I'm ready. Okay, great. Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Kelly Kirkpatrick. I'm the, one of the associate project directors of the um, government-funded grant that provides this. Um, we're funded by Hertzka, which allows us to offer some free of no So thank you for coming. No here. No Um, But because we're so funded, that's why we ask for some of the demographic information. We're asking you to fill out because they like to know who's attending our program. So thank you for taking a few minutes to do that for us. Um, Welcome to our Choosing Wisely series of our issues in geriatric health, clinical, and nursing insights. Um, Please join us next month as well. Justin Montgomery will be talking about um, antimicrobial use for urinary tract infections in older adults. In order to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in. So please make sure you've signed an assignment form at the back of the room. Um, And make sure that your handwriting is legible, because that can affect credit as well. Um, Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month on the Continuing Education website. Um, And you have an instruction sheet available to you, too, about how to access that, um, which you're welcome to take with you. You need to attend 80% of this hour-long program in order to get the credit. Um, neither our speakers or anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest um, or a relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one has refused to disclose. Any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed with this activity does not imply that there is a real or implied endorsement of the American Nurses Credentialing Center or Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Um, in addition to the biographical data form, um, you also have an evaluation that's also uh, required for us to submit to MRSA. so if you could please take a moment at the end of the program to fill that out and leave it with us, we'd really appreciate it. Um, if you have a cell phone or a pager, if you could put it on silent now, that would be great. Um, Those of you joining us from a remote site, if you could make sure that you are on mute unless you need to ask a question or make a comment. And thank you for bearing with me through all our housekeeping announcements. Um, and as you probably know, you're here today to hear Mary Wood speak about managing diabetes in older adults. Um, based on some recommendations that recently came out called the Choosing Wisely series for older adults, which were put together by a partnership between ABIM and the American Geriatrics Society of um, decisions that commonly older adults need to make about their health care and what the current recommendations are about that. Mary Wood is one of our diabetes educators here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And thank you for being with us, Mary. Thanks
1: very much. Well, thank you all for coming. It's nice to see you. Um, I was asked to give this talk um, about diabetes in the elderly, and I had to um, Google the Choosing Wisely part of this myself to kind of figure out what that's all about. So, um, And I've come to a couple of the earlier um, talks that have been given in this series, So I learned a little bit about some of these other Choosing Wisely topics. So this was sort of new for me. So in my Googling about diabetes, I actually found a few different um, recommendations beyond just the hemoglobin A1C recommendation that I um, thought was the uh, major focus of this piece. Um, so as Kelly said, these are um, recommendations supported by the uh, American Bariatric Society and Kelly, the other organization. EVIN. Okay. Um, For internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, that uh, trying to I think be more thoughtful, more reasonable, um, using of course the evidence that's out there, but but adding a little. Uh, Human touch to these recommendations, which I think is great. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about each of the um, three things I actually found about diabetes um, in the elderly, and then as time allows, and we go to one o'clock. Kelly, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will talk a little bit about um, maybe some other things, and certainly we'll have time for your questions about um, diabetes care. So uh, I will uh, move forward. Um, I think I've just. Share these kinds of things. Talk a little bit about education for older adults, if we can. Um, I know these are kind of hard to see. I copied these from the website, but I'll I'll read this to you if you can't see it. And it didn't. They would have been too small if I had printed them. So, um, so one of the um, choosing wisely recommendations. Um, and as I gathered, and I'm happy to hear what you think about this, Kelly, it sounds like some of these are focused on healthcare providers' recommendations for health, and others are for, for patients at home and for patients in nursing homes. So I have one of each of those. So this is the one um, for patients living at home, essentially, and uh, under the category of five things physicians and patients should question. And this one says don't recommend daily home fingerstick glucose testing in patients with type 2 diabetes who are not using insulin. Um, And this is a a great um, recommendation to discuss, um, and perhaps not just for our elderly patients, but for all of our patients who have diabetes. Um, I uh, have been struck over the years with the number of patients who say to me, my doctor told me to check my blood sugar every morning. Here is a three-month listing of my morning blood sugars. Well, so what's wrong with that? Overkill, right. So first of all, three months later, we can't do anything about the blood sugar that was 197 on February twelfth, can we? So it's old news. Um, but also, when people check their blood sugar just in the morning, they're probably not seeing an awful lot of variation, not really learning much from day to day. So um, when we first had home blood glucose meters, which is about 30 years ago now. It was great, because before that people had been testing their urine to see if there was excess glucose spilling over. And now we have this glucose meter that can essentially give us a lab result in the home. It was really great. And so people were so excited to have these numbers and started recommending it. But I think the numbers need to be used in real time in order for them to make any sense. So, So my recommendation is that people check Um, At different times of day because you learn different information from that most people with type 2 diabetes um, As I said have very little variation in their glucose from one day to the next So if if that's the only time they're testing then they're only getting a piece of the pie a piece of the information And not the whole picture we see patients often who say you know my morning blood sugars are always between 117 and 134 and then I get my hemoglobin a1c and it's 9.2 Who gives? So and that's understandable. They're never checking after they've eaten to see how high their sugar rises following a meal. So if they have a hemoglobin A1C of 9.2, that means on average their blood sugar is somewhere in the 220 zone, probably. If they're getting 120 in the morning, what's happening after they eat? So reasonable recommendations for glucose monitoring is really important. This is an uncomfortable test to do. People don't like the pokes. It's expensive. Each one of those little test strips costs about a dollar. Now, hopefully, their insurance or their Medicare is paying for it, but that's pretty pricey. And if they're not doing anything with information, that's like you or I checking our temperature every single day. You know, we're not going to learn a whole lot. So, the best recommendation, I think, is to tell patients that they should be asking their little meter a question. They should say, What did that spaghetti do to my blood sugar? What did taking that nice long walk do to my blood sugar? How's my new medicine or my new dose of medicine working? Why do I feel a little funny? So we shouldn't have patients testing automatically at the same time of day every day, because they're not going to learn much from that. But test when it's meaningful. And and the individual should want the answer to that question. They should want to know what their little meter is going to tell them. So testing logically. And judiciously, so not every day, perhaps. But uh, I usually tell patients who have type 2 diabetes, check before and a couple hours after a meal, uh, one meal, uh, three days a week. So Monday, check before and an hour or two after breakfast. Wednesday, before, an hour or two after dinner. Friday, before, an hour or two after lunch. So mix it up a little bit through the week so that you get the big picture. That's my recommendation. Um, so as this recommendation said, there's really no benefit to daily finger stick monitoring in patients of type 2 diabetes who are not on insulin or meds that would cause hypoglycemia, such as the sulfonylureas. Um, there's a negative economic impact, potential negative clinical impact. Um, so monitoring should be reserved for patients as are titrating medication doses um, or during changes in their diet and exercise routine. Comments or questions about that recommendation? Pretty logical, and isn't that the right thing to do to bring logic back into (laughs) into healthcare? (laughs) What a novel concept! Okay, Um, this is the one of the choose wisely recommendations that was first brought my attention. Um, And this is the one about the hemoglobin A1Cs, and it's endorsed uh, by the American Dariatric Society. Um, This says, to avoid using medications to achieve a hemoglobin A1C less than 7.5% in most most adults over age 65, um, or 65 and over, moderate control is generally better. And so this is, again, another sort of let's be reasonable Recommendation. So since um, the Diabetes Control and Complications trial published back in the early 90s, 1993, and that was a study of people with type 1 diabetes that were younger. So that when they were enrolled in that trial, they were 13 to 39 years of age and pretty new to their type 1 diabetes. Uh, another study followed uh, shortly thereafter, um, done in the United Kingdom, called the UK Prospective diabetes study, and this looked at type 2s who were newly diagnosed. Um, both trials were trying to determine if tight blood sugar control really did prevent complications. And um, so, out of those trials came the recommendation that keeping a hemoglobin A1c lower than 7% reduces the likelihood of the microvascular complications the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves. In the type 1 trial, the population was young enough that there were very few macrovascular complications, so few heart attacks, no strokes, no peripheral vascular disease. Um, and so they really couldn't comment, based on the outcomes of that trial, about whether or not type blood sugar control really did help to prevent macrovascular complications. In the larger United Kingdom type 2 trial, um, these were newly diagnosed patients. And there uh, was a trend, but not a statistically significant uh, uh, evidence, that prevention of the large vessel complications could happen with tight blood sugar control. So, um, so since then, some other trials have been conducted um, and have shown that in uh, the three similar trials that were done. Um, And essentially what we learned is these were people who had a long history of type 2 diabetes, at least 10 years of type 2, I think, was a typical um, uh, subject in each of these trials, who had been in kind of mediocre control, and then was abruptly brought, brought their diabetes into very good control. And in at least one of these trials, actually, they stopped early because the mortality rate was increased in people who rapidly improved their blood sugar control where it had previously been less than stellar. Uh, So the recommendation that came out of this trial, the advanced trial, was that early and aggressive treatment is probably a really good idea. But for people who haven't been in very good control, rapidly bringing their glucose to normal, and trying to maintain that there is not in their best interest. So this has sparked a whole lot of conversation about um, what the the target ought to be for a hemoglobin A1C value. And so um, out of that has come um, this kind of spaghetti um, convoluted algorithm for managing type 2 diabetes um, and adding medications and all that. But what is really most significant is that that sort of shows there's more than one way to skin a cat in treating diabetes. But this is really what I wanna talk about here in the context of our elderly patients. So let me explain this colorful graph. As I said, our recommendation had always been that all of our patients with diabetes should aim for a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7%. We knew that would delay or perhaps prevent the small vessel complications. But within these new trials, that found that people who dramatically and rapidly improved their control had worse outcomes and worse morbidity and mortality outcomes. So an expert committee got together, looked at the evidence. And this is what they came up with. And essentially what this is saying is that we need to individualize our A1C target for our patients based on a number of factors. So what this says is that for people who uh, have the right attitude and are willing to put in the hard work to take good care of their diabetes, we should aim for tighter hemoglobin A1C targets in those folks. Um, for people who are less motivated or less able, able to um, do the day in and day out treatment for their diabetes, we should, for them, advise a less stringent hemoglobin A1C target. Um, that's the purple triangle there. So then moving down, for people who have um, a high risk of hypoglycemia, and it, that's dangerous for them. So for people who don't feel it when they get low, we shouldn't aim for really tight control in those people. For people who have a very good awareness of their own hypoglycemia, then we can aim for tighter targets. Okay. So um, it's not too, too common, but in, particularly in type 1s we see this. If they've had diabetes a long time, they, they may not feel their low blood sugars as robustly as they did when they were younger and earlier in their disease. This is actually an autonomic neuropathy caused by diabetes. So sort of a complication of diabetes. And the risk here is, as you can imagine, that if they had a hypoglycemic reaction and didn't feel shaky and sweaty, they wouldn't know to treat it. And if their blood sugar will then only go lower, and they risk passing out, having a car accident, seizure. So, terrible outcomes can happen from hypoglycemia that isn't felt and therefore not treated. So, hypoglycemia unawareness is the official name for this. So, saying that for people who don't feel their lows, we should relax their target a little bit. And um, a lot of times with our elderly, too, um, when they get to 110, mm-hmm. they feel. Yeah, hypoglycemic, so they feel symptoms before right, right, which is reflect. right, which is kind of a different issue, but a very important issue as yeah. well. So if that's the case, and that's not just in the elderly, but in a lot of patients, they'll say, "Oh, you know, I feel so much better when my blood sugar is 150, so that's where I want to keep it, because I really feel shaky when I'm 110," and and that is because they've developed a tolerance for that very high blood sugar level, and that feels normal to them. And if they rapidly bring it down to what we consider a normal number, they feel like they're hypoglycemic. So the, the hypoglycemic symptoms, so the shaky, sweaty, tingly, lips, hunger feeling, those are the result of a rapid drop in the blood sugar. Not necessarily an absolute low number, but a difference for them. And so when people feel hypoglycemic, we don't want them to feel uncomfortable. So they should treat it, but not over-treat it is really the key. So sometimes, in that case, we encourage them, it's not very portable, because it's not non-term, but treat it with a little skim milk rather than with OJ. So you'll get a more blunted rise in the blood sugar rather than a sharp spike. Uh, But the overall treatment of that situation is to very gradually try to lower the threshold at which they feel low blood sugar symptoms. And that's a long process. So they've been living in the 200s, let's say. We drop them to 120, and they feel shaky, so they want to go right back to the 200s where it feels better to them. Uh, and unfortunately, it, you know, if I had my druthers, high blood sugar would make people feel terrible, and low blood sugar would make them feel wonderful. So that's the hypoglycemia is the real limiting factor in being able to treat diabetes aggressively. People don't feel bad when their blood sugar's too high. I used, when I used to work with teenagers, I said, some of you have heard me say this before, if they broke out in zits, if their blood sugar was too high, they would never let it get too high. That would be way too humiliating. So it, it, you know, if people felt something, so maybe we need an antibiotic drug or something for hyperglycemia. I don't know. But it's easy to sort of get used to blood sugars in the 200. So the goal, as I said, for those folks is to gradually reduce the target so that they do feel good at a normal blood sugar level. But it's a process. So patients really, really don't like hypoglycemia. It comes on quickly. It makes them feel bad. And so they do what they can to avoid it, which then makes them end up spending more time in the high zone than we'd like. So again, whether they feel their low blood sugars or not, that needs to be factored in. The duration of their diabetes. The the shorter period of time they've had diabetes, the more aggressive we should be with the targets. And that, I think, speaks to at least a couple of things. One is, early in their disease, they absolutely will feel it when they're hypoglycemic. They don't have that autonomic neuropathy yet. So when they get low, they know they're low. So that that, uh, sense of symptoms is, for them, a good security Uh, blanket, that when they get low, they'll feel it, and then can treat it, and then go on. So we can be a little more aggressive. Um, And the other thing it speaks to is the fact that if they've had diabetes a long time, pushing really hard to the targets is bad for their macrovascular disease. So that should be considered as well. Uh, Life expectancy. If uh, we have a patient who is 93 and has no complications of their diabetes, then they've won, and should should be allowed to relax their targets just a little bit and not have to work so hard. Um, If if an individual has some other uh, terminal condition, then the chance of microvascular complications 15 years down the road is sadly a moot point. So we can relax it a little bit if they've got something else going on um, that is likely to um, be the cause of their demise. Um, other comorbidities. Again, this is the, uh, people who have complications from their diabetes or other serious conditions. You know, Pushing really, really hard for tight blood sugar control is not high on the priority list. Um, and again, if they have vascular complications that have already been established, again, the issue of increased mortality there. And finally, resources and a support system. It's not cheap to take good care of diabetes. And if people don't have good insurance to pay for the test strips, the insulin, these new designer insulins, new insulin all are really expensive. Insulin used to be cheap. I get a lot of this. Had a patient in recently who had not been in the hospital or admitted to the doctor for 20 years. He was going to um, Walmart and buying over-the-counter NPH and regular insulin old NPH and regular, and he got syringes from some family member that had a big stash. Treating his own diabetes for 20 years without a doctor. I read back to his last note with the endocrinologist, which was from 1995, must have been 1995. And the doctor had written, patient is not achieving targets with glyburide. I would like to add glucophage, which was the brand name Metformin when it first came out. I would like to add glucophage, but because of the cost, patient prefers to go on insulin instead. So think about that. Now, metformin is so cheap. It's on the Walmart $4 list. But back then, this fellow said, you know what? I'd rather buy insulin as cheaper than paying for glucophage, brand name glucophage, which was expensive because it was new, so time to change. But back to my point, which is this is expensive. And so for people who don't have the ability to pay for the test strips, the insulin, the syringes, the healthy food, all that stuff. We also have patients that can't see to draw up insulin, We mm-hmm. cover them. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if they can't see it well enough to draw up the insulin, mm-hmm. yeah. you do the orals, even though it's not necessarily yeah. the best. You know, one suggestion for that is if they use the insulin pens, when they turn the dial, they can hear and feel the clicks. So they can click, 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 You know, count up their dose in that way. So that's one option. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about medicines in general. But for most people, you um, who have type 2 diabetes, they start off with one medicine, usually metformin, if they can tolerate it. Um, As I said before, one of my dreams is that we'd have symptoms when the blood sugar is too high, that would make people feel bad. But my overarching dream is that we would have a metformin that doesn't cause diarrhea. It is the best drug, but that is just a showstopper for some people, unfortunately. So, So most people type 2, they start on metformin. And that's a great medicine and they should stay on that forever as long as they tolerate it and as long as their creatinine doesn't bump. Um, And then if need be, we need to add a second agent if that metformin alone isn't getting them to target. And that might be a sulfonylurea, although that adds the side effects of weight gain and hypoglycemia. Um, But it's inexpensive as well, which is great. Um, A third agent sometimes is added, we used to use the... um, Insulin sensitizers, Actose and Avandia, but they're now wrought with side effects. So we're hoping something new in that class, because it's actually a very helpful class of medicines. It helps to improve insulin sensitivity, which is what we really <laughs> want to do early on in type 2 diabetes. So that's sort of the you know, the, the uh, uh, progression of the oral medications. The newer ones, like Genuvia, add little benefit. Then there are the injectables, Bieta and Victoza, which help some. but a lot of people with type 2 diabetes get to the point where insulin is truly the very best treatment for them, um, and so that's what we need to do when the time is right. And most, you know, nobody wants to take shots. I keep saying to my new patients who are new to insulin, "I thought you were going to be the one that said yippee, I get to give myself shots." Nobody wants to take shots, but it's the very best, most aggressive. Um, so, being able to afford the treatment and the support system as well. Not only is this an expensive disease, but it's really a a burden, a lifestyle burden for patients to do all the right things day in and day out. So, having friends or family that can help support them. And there's always a fine line between supporting and nagging. That you know, people <laughs> the, the well-meaning family wants the best for the person with diabetes, but sometimes that comes across as you know nagging saying things that you know yourself you should be doing but you just don't. So so to kind of summarize there's a lot of stuff on this slide but it really all is logical isn't it? Makes a lot of sense. So so for the provider to individualize the goal for this patient taking into account all of these factors and determining whether 7% should be the target Or 6% for a brand newly diagnosed type 1 who's with it, has the money, has the family support, and is willing to put in the effort, 6% is is achievable and is great for these individuals. But for people who who are on the other end of the spectrum, maybe 8% is really the goal. So again, this was just published a couple of years ago. um, And I think it's a really uh, fine and logical Conversation to have with a patient to think about all of these factors, which is great. Before this had come out, we used to sort of just kind of tongue in cheek, but really, really useful. We used to say once people hit 75 years of age, 10% of their age is a really good A1C to shoot for. And so, which really, I don't know, that's an easy way to think about it. Um, but trying to aim for reasonable glycemic control in the context of all else they have going on in their life is really the key. And so, um, so the recommendation from the American Geriatric Society um, is, is supporting all of this, that there's really no evidence that um, pushing a lot of medications to get really tight blood sugar control in older adults is beneficial. Um, so aiming for uh, a reasonable hemoglobin A1C um, that has respect for their comorbidities, their life expectancy, their willingness to um, put in the effort. You know, we don't want to give patients' unreasonable expectations or recommendations that they're not going to be able to follow and have them feel like a failure, we really want people to feel like they're succeeding in the appropriate treatment for them. Um, And then finally, the third of these um, wisely, what is I'm frankly of the word. Choosing wisely. wisely. Thank you, Kelly. Um, Recommendation is one about long-term care. And this one says um, that we shouldn't use sliding scale insulin for long-term diabetes management for individuals living in nursing homes. And I think this is great. Um, As I mentioned, when we first got uh, glucose meters, people thought, oh, great, we have a number. We have to do something with that number. We get, ah, sliding scale. What a great idea. Get a number, give a dose. Get a number, give a different dose. So that's sort of the. Genesis. Although I should back up, even before we had gl- blood glucose meters, people were using sliding scale insulin for urine glucose test results. Made us feel really low. I know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, don't mean to look it's right not. at you, Don, but it's true. So for, for the younger folks in the room, you don't remember that. But we used to test urine for glucose and ketones, which that's another story for another day. But um, And then based on that number that we got, We would give regular insulin sliding scale. Now, a couple problems with that. One is that regular insulin is really pretty slow compared to Novolog and Humalog. They work pretty fast. But regular insulin, you inject it and then you wait an hour or so before it finally kicks in. So we're giving a sort of slow insulin to treat old news. The urine glucose was like old information about what the glucose had been back when that urine was forming, and by the time the patient had the urge to void, who knows how much time had passed and how old that news was. So that was really kind of crazy. But even now, we've got these modern glucose meters. In five seconds, we get a result. We know what the blood glucose is at this very moment. But if the blood glucose at this very moment is 285, isn't the horse out of the barn already? We don't want people to be 285, but it happened. So now we're going to put a Band-Aid on that to fix that. So it's really it's really, um, catch-up treatment. And then it kind of puts people on a roller coaster ride. So we, So they're 285 now because they just ate a big meal. OK, so we give them some insulin, we drop them down, blood sugar's normal. And then they eat another meal, the blood sugar goes back up again. We put another Band-Aid on that with another sliding scale. Dose. So it sets people on a roller coaster right? So I don't think sliding scales ought to be used anywhere, but particularly with nursing home patients. And so I've highlighted a couple of things from this um, recommendation from the AMDA, which, and I didn't write down what that acronym is for. Is it some other um, geriatric associated?
0: Oh, I don't know that
1: one. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, too. I apologize. I should have written that down, what that is. but. Oh, maybe it's the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and who knows what AMDA stands for. (laughs) But anyway, um, so they said, and it makes sense, that good evidence exists that sliding scale insulin is neither effective in meeting the body's insulin needs, nor is it efficient in the long-term care setting. So we have no evidence that sliding scales are effective in any
0: population,
1: really. But we, do, we have done them for years and years, so we continue to do them. But they're really not very effective. Um, using sliding scale insulin leads to patient discomfort. Lots of finger pokes, lots of insulin pokes, um, and increased time for nurses because the patient blood sugar levels are usually monitored more frequently than they would be if we were doing some sort of preventive insulin approach. Uh, with sliding scale insulin regimens, patients may be at risk for prolonged periods of hyperglycemia. We don't give insulin until we test and find they're high, so they're, they may spend a long time in the high zone. Um, and then the risk of hypoglycemia, because the insulin with a sliding scale is given without regard for meals. It's given you know, just based on the tunnel vision of one tidbit of information. What is the blood glucose at this very moment? No regard for when they've eaten or when they'll eat again. No regard for whether they have a long-acting insulin on board or an oral agent on board. So just merely one piece of information drives that number. Um, So it's really not very thoughtful. Um, The recommendation instead is to use basal bolus insulin, which is what we use for all of our patients. And I know that we uh, discharge a fair number of our patients from the hospital to nursing homes. And I have actually gone to a few of the local nursing homes and talked with the nursing staff there. And they do a really nice job with basal bolus insulin. So as long as it is ordered that way, they do a really nice job with it. The meals are you know, sort of at set times for the residents, um, and generally um, a fairly consistent carbohydrate content. Um, so a sort of fixed meal dose, along with the long-acting insulin dose, really works quite nicely for these. And that's what we should be emphasizing. So, yes, please. It's um, American Medical Directors Association. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, so this statement went on to say that uh, low glucose levels, or actually frank hypoglycemia, can result in problems, particularly at, uh, for elderly patients, including falls and fall-related injuries, and then hospitalization. So we certainly don't want to cause hypoglycemia in our elderly patients, or in anybody for that matter. But the elderly folks are at higher risk for falls. If they feel shaky and sweaty, I always tell patients to keep something next to their bed should they wake up in the night with a low blood sugar uh, so they don't have to get up and stumble somewhere to get something to eat or drink. Um, it's also quite a burden for patients who have to um, be, have their fingers checked multiple times a day, multiple insulin injections. Um, Typically, sliding scale insulin uh, results in really wide excursions in the blood sugar control. And so not only is that not good control, but it's actually shown to be harmful to have these wide swings. So really um, recommending that we move toward basal bolus insulin treatment um, for all of our patients. And with reasonable targets, um, should be much safer than trying to chase our tail by giving sliding scale insulin. Comments or questions? I have one question, Please. just because it's stuck in my brain about mm-hmm. someone who is hypoglycemic mm-hmm. offering them milk as opposed to orange mm-hmm. juice. Yep. In what setting? I mean, you's... well, where the refrigerator. <laughs> right. But um, so just because it's a little less of a sharp rise in the blood sugar when we give OJ, that is 15 grams of pure sugar carbohydrate, right. so it will quickly be absorbed and raise the blood sugar pretty dramatically. But milk has 12 grams of carb in eight ounces. So four ounces would be six grams of carb. It also has a little protein in it as well, which sort of blunts the glucose excursion. So if we give OJ, we get this. Right, It's just if, my nature, i of yeah. like, oh, I need orange juice, not yeah. milk. Right. So and milk. Again, well, it, and I said milk if they are feeling like they're low, but their blood sugar is a 110. So they're not clinically low yet. So it's a little more, a little something to take the edge off the symptoms, but also to kind of prevent it from dropping any lower. Is that also true of like the non-dairy milks? Like you know, the almond milk, soy milk and everything? It's so interesting you say that. Just last week I was at a conference and this question came up about the grams of carbohydrate. And there was somebody in the audience who uh, was uh, s- saying that almond milk doesn't have carbs. And the speaker, who's a dietitian, was saying, yes, I says it does. So, and I didn't come home and look that up, so I'm glad that I So you'd have to look at the label. So they, they need some carb, okay. but just not too much. And again, these are people, I'm glad you raised this for clarification, for people whose blood sugar is not lower than 70. So clinically, they're not hypoglycemic, but they're feeling like they are, because it's lower than they usually live. So in that case, giving them OJ would just send them even higher, and that's not what they need. But a little milk or something like that would help to take the edge off without making them spike up too high. I think I know the answer to that.
0: Um, almond milk
1: comes in a variety of calories per serving. Uh-huh. And you can get almond milk in um, as low as 30 calories per serving. Mm-hmm. So there's not many carbs in that. Right. Gotcha. Uh, but there are some that have sweetener added mm-hmm. that bring your carbs, natural sweeteners that bring yeah. the carbs up. So it depends on. How many carbs per serving? that yeah, has. Gotcha. Interesting. So okay. If you have a diabetic, that's depending on that, mm-hmm. I wouldn't do the thirty calorie one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> thank you for. Sharing. I had no idea about that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. So so with four ounces of skim milk, that's about six grams of carb. Um, they could use a couple of glucose tablets, and, you know, instead of four glucose tablets, using two. So just you know, sort of a partial dose, enough to kind of take the edge off, but not to shoot them way back up again. Did you have a hand? No. Okay. Other questions or thoughts about that? Okay, So that's what I had prepared to say about the choosing wisely recommendations. So individualizing the hemoglobin A1C for the long-term management of our elderly patients. Thoughtful use of home blood glucose monitoring. So we're not having patients just checking robotically every morning and missing the rest of the picture. Um, And then in nursing homes, not using sliding scale insulin alone, but using a thoughtful, individualized, basal bolus regimen for the patients who are taking insulin. So those are the big three messages from the Choosing Wisely. Um, I have a few other things I'll say about elderly people with diabetes, but if you have questions or comments from your experience to share, I'd be delighted to talk about those as well. Okay, Um, So. Um, we're going to see even more diabetes than we're seeing right now. Um, for me, that feels like job security, which is great. <laughs> as a nurse, as a rapidly aging person, it makes me feel kind of concerned <laughs> about that. So, But elderly patients with diabetes are living longer. Um, we're going to use increasing amounts of scarce, scarce healthcare resources. Um, Diabetes may prove to be the most important epidemic of the 21st century. So we are um, just seeing dramatic growth in the prevalence of diabetes in this country and around the world. There are countries in the world that had very little type 2 diabetes a generation ago, and now they're seeing more and more of it everywhere, in India, and China, and places that really had very little type 2 diabetes. And what do you think is contributing to that? Diet.
0: Sugar.
1: Diet? Sugar? I'll just say give you a couple of things one is KFC Kentucky fried chicken in and McDonald. you know, seeing the, the Americanization of the diet throughout the world is just incredible um, So we're more and more diabetes everywhere sadly, and I I don't think we've hit the, the peak yet I think that the, the prevalence is still rising appreciation for the fact that um, diabetes is linked to obesity hopefully will, over time, help our obesity epidemic to peak and then start to decline. It has taken, uh, I don't know, 30 years since the first Surgeon General's report to finally see a decline in smoking behaviors in our country. So I think the obesity epidemic is is going to peak before it starts to drop off as well. But this is, this is huge. Um, so that's a piece of it. We do know that prevention of type 2 diabetes is possible. In in individuals who have risk factors for type 2 diabetes, so they have a family history, they have um, perhaps a a racial or ethnic heritage that puts them at a higher risk. So African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Native-Americans, Pacific Islanders at a higher risk for type 2 than Caucasians. Um, Aging, the older we get, the higher our risk. And certainly obesity. So some of those things we can't change. We can't change our ethnic heritage. We can't change our age, but we can change our BMI. And we can um, change our exercise habits. So those are the things that really make a difference. So exercise, healthy diet, and modest weight loss. For people to lose 5 or 10 pounds can make the difference between having type 2 diabetes and not having type 2 diabetes. It doesn't have to be 50 pounds of weight loss. Just a little bit improves our sensitivity to insulin. And that's what this is all about. So in in pre-diabetes and in early type 2 diabetes, our focus really is not on adding more insulin, but rather on making the insulin that's still there work better. And exercise is probably the most powerful treatment for that. Exercise uses up your glucose faster and opens your insulin receptors. So less insulin does the job in the setting of open insulin receptors. Exercise and a little bit of weight loss. That's really the key to uh, preventing type 2 diabetes in high-risk individuals. So hopefully we'll start to see a decline in the prevalence of diabetes at some point, which would be great. Um, Mary, can I just of course no please. please yeah. So how much weight is too much? Ma- I mean, probably most Americans feel like they're overweight mm-hmm. anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a magic number of your how much over a baseline or? Yeah. There really isn't a magic number in the prevention trials. They aimed for 7% of the body weight. So for somebody who weighs 200 pounds, that would be 14 pounds. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was what they they studied in this one trial. So other than that, we don't have any specific evidence for that. Okay. But every little bit of weight loss improves your own sensitivity to insulin, and that's what really makes the difference. Okay. Uh, so the... the um, what we know now about prevalence of diabetes is that right now by the age of 75, about one out of five individuals has type 2 diabetes. But about half of those people don't know they have it. Again, as I said, high blood sugar doesn't make you feel different. So people walk around for years with undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. So that's another real push now is to have people screened for diabetes. And I don't know how many of you who are employees here have earned your $100 by going for your uh, health assessment but that they do a, a glucose as well as a cholesterol screening there. Um, and the recommendation is for anybody over age 45 and for people who have risk factors starting at a younger age to be screened at least once every three years for diabetes, and then making um, the diagnosis. I mentioned that certain people are at a higher risk. I'm going to skip through a little bit of this. Um, so in, in elderly people who have um, type 2 diabetes, their um, metabolism is not quite um, normal. They, um, people who are middle aged they are starting to see some uh, excess output of glucose from the liver in the fasting state, and that's why the fasting sugars tend to be high. And then a little delayed response to an elevated sugar after a meal, so not a quick insulin release like they had earlier, um, but a little bit of a delayed response, um, and then. Um, All of that contributes to the insulin resistance. Interestingly, in elderly people, their um, fasting, hepatic glucose output tends to be normal. Um, We do certainly see some type 2 diabetes in lean individuals. About 80% of type 2's are obese, so not everybody
0: is overweight.
1: Um, So there are some individuals who have type 2 diabetes yet are lean. Um, They tend to have a little bit more of a, impaired release of insulin following a meal. Um, But they respond pretty well to reasonable amounts of insulin. So they don't have a lot of insulin resistance. Um, In the elderly folks who are obese, um, they tend to be more, uh, their situation tends to be more weighted toward um, insulin resistance and less toward the uh, diminished uh, release of insulin after a meal. as I said, a lot of people don't have any symptoms with um, hyperglycemia. I don't know if you can see this. I call the incontinence hotline. They ask, can you hold, please? Um, but the classic presentation of um, diabetes that we think about, the polyuria, polydipsia, um, is generally related to type 1 diabetes, because that comes on like gangbusters. Just this week, we had a newly diagnosed patient with type 2, di- type 1 diabetes, excuse me admitted to the hospital. And that's pretty uncommon. Usually um, they're treated in the outpatient area. So we got to see a patient in the inpatient side. Um, but the clinical presentation of type 2 diabetes is often no symptoms, unless you really dig deep. Um, so um, they may have Say you know, oh, I've gotten into the habit of having a second or third cup of coffee, or I, you know, I always have a water bottle around. So you maybe they're a little more thirsty, but they may not realize it. Although some elderly people don't really sense their thirst; they don't feel it when they're thirsty. Um, In elderly people, the uh, renal threshold for glucose is a little bit higher. Most of us would probably start spilling glucose if our blood sugar exceeded about 180. So that is what the polyuria is all about when our blood sugar is too high and we have high blood sugar, we make more urine. But in uh, elderly people, their renal threshold is a little bit higher. So their blood sugar would have to be probably well above 200 before they'd start spilling extra glucose and therefore being polyuric. Um, So the symptoms are, uh, as I mentioned, the thirst may not be um, noticed. Um, Sometimes we see people with some confusion. Their brain isn't um, operating quite right. Uh, Failure to thrive, incontinence, maybe um, noticed. Um, So sometimes the initial presentation of new diabetes happens when a patient is admitted for an MI or a stroke, which may have been hastened by their hyperglycemia that they didn't even know they had. Um, Sometimes we see in elderly patients, both in nursing homes, but actually also at home, a lot of people who live alone, hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar, non-ketotic syndrome, maybe the first presentation of their diabetes. Um, This is kind of like the... the, uh, DKA equivalent in type 2 diabetes. So severe hyperglycemia, severe dehydration um, is what we see in individuals with type type 2 diabetes that has not been um, noticed and treated. But these older people they keep taking their LASIKs every day, they don't feel it when they're thirsty, they start to have some changes in their um, awareness, their level of consciousness, so they don't seek treatment. So that's a really kind of scary and common thing. So making the diagnosis is really, really important for people of all ages, uh, but for, particularly for people who are elderly, so that uh, the diagnosis isn't missed and they don't start to have uh, failure to thrive and changes in their level of consciousness. So these are the current diagnostic criteria for, uh, for anybody with diabetes of all ages. Um, and I just want to point out a couple of things. Um, generally, when people come in for a, an appointment, we have blood drawn. And what you can't see on the bottom of the screen is that it says that you need to confirm um, the diagnosis with a second test on a subsequent day in the absence of um, classic symptoms of diabetes. I heard Dr. Schneider give a talk the other day, and she said something that I had never really thought about before, but it was spot on. She said, if you have a patient who goes into the clinic and you draw hemoglobin A1C, and you get a random glucose, and they have fatigue, you can make the diagnosis that day because that's two tests. And who doesn't have fatigue? That's what she said, which I thought was great. So that's a symptom of hyperglycemia. So instead of bringing them back a second day, if their, you know, random sugar exceeds 200 and the hemoglobin A1C exceeds is 6.5 or higher, then they've got diabetes, and you can make the diagnosis right there. Um, so when we need to screen people who don't have diabetes yet, as I mentioned. And we're looking to find people when they're in the pre-diabetes zone. So their numbers are not still normal, but they're not yet high enough to meet the criteria for diabetes. They're in this in-between phase. Because when we find them there, we can hopefully encourage them to change their lifestyle habits enough to prevent the progression to full-blown diabetes. And that's true for people of any age. And again, the treatment for pre-diabetes is healthy diet, Regular exercise, a little bit of weight loss. And newsflash they're starting to use metformin for prediabetes. It actually recently um, was granted an FDA approval for the indication of prediabetes. And that's new news. Um, And again, it's a great medicine if they can tolerate it without diarrhea. Uh, It helps to um, suppress the excessive hepatic output of glucose, helps to improve insulin sensitivity, open up those insulin receptors. Um, has a little bit of a nice effect on uh, appetite suppression, which is always welcome, and it has a nice effect on the lipid profile, which is great. So the fabulous medicine is cheap, and other than the kooky side effect of diarrhea, it's really um, a great, great medicine. The long-acting is less. Yes. Thank you for saying that. That is more expensive than it's not. Uh huh. Yeah. So taking it, the long-acting does help with the, the GI side effects. The other thing that helps is not taking it on an empty stomach. We always say give it after meals. And that has nothing to do with its effect on lowering the blood sugar. It has everything to do with its effect on reducing nausea and diarrhea.
0: Please. Um, if someone has temporarily stopped on their metformin like during hospitalization and then restarted, can they develop diarrhea from that or if not if they previously tolerated yeah. it?
1: You know, I, that's a great question, and working just in the hospital, I don't always get that feedback sure. to, to know for sure. I don't hear about that. Mm-hmm. So, so from the literature and from my colleagues, I don't know that to be true. Mm-hmm. Have you
0: seen that in your experience, uh, no. Just The family member now, I'm wondering if uh-huh. that's part of the
1: yeah. yeah, so it's a great question. And certainly there could be a lot of things. We send people home with antibiotics or other things sure. that can make that difference. But So it's probably always safe to start again slowly. So we generally start it with, after dinner, take a dose on a full stomach at night, that way, they're going to bed and you know, in their home. So if they have diarrhea, that, um, and once they tolerate that for a little while, then add a 500 milligrams after breakfast in the morning, and then as need be, then double that up to a thousand twice a day. Um, and you, we do see a nice dose response when we increase that, which is which is great. So um, again, screening for diabetes is important. Um, Uh, You know, when people get older, and I don't know the specifics about this, but I think some of the cancer screening things kind of drop off, which is logical. But I think, you know, for for diabetes screening, it's a pretty easy thing to do if we're sticking them for bloods anyway, to just check that lab and see. And then, you know, that they will probably feel more energetic if their blood sugar is controlled. There'll be less risk for dehydration, um, incontinence, you know, some really... um, unfortunate and annoying things that can happen in elderly people in particular if we treat their diabetes. So so treating prediabetes is really um, the key that we would like to um, emphasize. Uh, So diabetes can begin at any age. Um, We have seen um, new diagnoses at all ages. Um, The older people are, the more likely they are to develop type 2 diabetes. Um, But older people never cease to amaze me. I'm thinking of a couple of patients in particular who uh, needed to start taking insulin in their mid-80s. And these people were just amazing. This one woman had, uh, was 85, had had type 2 diabetes for some time, but she needed to go on to insulin. Um, and she learned it like that. They're, she just did so well. She went home from the hospital. And as I said, I don't usually get the feedback loop. But she called the next day, and she said, my bowling group is meeting tomorrow, and I need to know whether I should reduce my insulin before I go bowling so I don't have a hypoglycemic reaction. I thought, wow, what a whiz. You know, a person in their 50s wouldn't even think about that. But I thought she was just terrific, which was just great. Another gentleman I'm thinking about, 88 years old, is on, intermittently on steroids. So when he's on steroids, his glipizide just doesn't get the job done. So he takes some NPH with his prednisone. and he has a much younger wife who was more than willing to give him his once-a-day NPH injection. And he insisted, no, I'm going to do this myself. And I'm not kidding you when I tell him, it, it took about 10 tries for him to learn how to put the needle on the pen, prime the pen, to, you know, go through all those motions. But he had the patience of a saint, and he just sat through that all and finally learned it, got it down pat, and he's doing beautifully with it. So it's, it's really amazing. I've been, been so impressed that people of any age can learn to manage their diabetes and can do well. Uh, So the treatment really works. It's day in and day out. There is no cure, so you have to keep at it every day. But it it is um, important. So trying to aim for avoiding hypoglycemia, avoiding hyperglycemia, um, trying to um, reduce the likelihood of the vascular complications, um, and feel energetic, have the diabetes fit into their lifestyle rather than adapting their lifestyle to meet the diabetes. So um, incorporating it in their life is really the key. Um, So I'm just going to mention, so just like anybody else, healthy diet is important. Um, Regular exercise um, is really the key. Exercising with a friend is great for safety's sake and for motivation. Um, the medications, individualizing the treatment as I said to meet the targets that we're aiming for, insulin as needed, reasonable monitoring. We've talked about this already. Um, what to do with the results? Not thinking about it as like a, a letter grade, but as a, you know, a piece of information. I would say to, you know, the blood sugar number should be like your temperature. If, you, if your temperature is normal, you go about your day. If your blood sugar is normal, keep doing what you're doing. If it's not, where you're expected, then there are things that you do. So you need to just take care of it. Um, and finally, just I'm going to say two words about patient education um, for elderly folks. Um, I think that um, we all know how to teach patients things. And every patient is different. We need to meet them where they are. Some patients um, respond better to reading things, or watching videos, or um, a human one-on-one interaction. Um, so, for our elderly patients, keeping it, you know, keeping it simple, but answering their questions, um, trying to uh, provide them with additional follow-up opportunities to practice injections, practice glucose monitoring, uh, written information to accompany what we've told them in person is key, including family members. If the individual wants that to be the case, um, they may choose that, you know, to do it independently without their family. I think it's always great to include another set of eyes and ears in the teaching. Um, and frequent follow-up is really the key. Um, so frequent visits with their primary care provider and diabetes specialty team if need be, um, following their blood sugars or hemoglobin A1Cs, you know, surveillance for complications, um, and always thinking about the burden of treatment of diabetes on their quality of life is key. Um, if individuals have you know, some dexterity issues, Vision problems, you know, thinking about gadgets that might help them. So they can, if they can't see, to drop the insulin. Um, or um, the syringe magnifier is another possibility, which helps with both dexterity, holding the bottle and the syringe together, and also helps with vision. Um, very important. Healthy diet, so if they um, taste changes from other medicines or whatever, thinking about um, mm-hmm. trying to encourage healthy nutrition. Um, isolation and, and having to do cooking, for one, is always a challenge for a lot of people. So including the dietitians in the teaching is great because they often have some really good suggestions. Um, so finally, um, thinking about um, the, the whole patient, if um, individuals develop um, diabetes after age 65, it's estimated that their life expectancy is reduced by about four years. And that the mortality is related to elevated hemoglobin A1Cs. And also, the um, big swings in blood glucose when we were talking about the sliding scales, that's a piece of it as well. Um, so certainly, quality of life. And once they get to a certain age, and you know, it makes sense to kind of back off on it just a little bit. I'm trying to move ahead to um, my final picture. Remember the 20 extra years you added through all that clean, healthy living? Well, these are the <laughs> <laughs> extra 20 years. Um, one more funny picture I'm trying to get to here, and you've probably seen it before. And then I will pause and take your questions. Oh, there it is. Oh. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, you probably have seen that
1: photo before. But um, so when people have diabetes, I mentioned that the the microvascular complications, the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves are really t- directly tied to glycemic control. But when it comes to the heart attack and stroke risk. It's really not just the diabetes, but also the blood pressure, the cholesterol, the not smoking, the stress, the, uh, being active, all of those things. So looking at the whole patient, diabetes is just one piece of that, um, but certainly important to try to. That. So it's exactly one. So let me pause right here. Any questions? I'll, be, I'll stay around if there are other questions people would like to ask. Okay, can I make a comment? Please. It's, it's the patient that calls and says, I don't have diabetes. Why is diabetes on my list? I'm not
0: diabetic. Taking their blood sugars are normal, and don't think they have a
1: problem anymore. What is, What is that? I, I, I've seen that before. Um, and hypertension. Yeah, When I retire, when they cure diabetes, and I can step away from this job, what I want to study, and I, I guess it'll no longer be a pertinent. but I always wonder about on the day of the diagnosis, what is actually said to the patient and what the patient actually hears. I, wouldn't that be fascinating to study? I think sometimes what the patient is told is, oh, you no. have a touch of the sugar. Yes, I love it. A touch of the sugar. It's like being a touch pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, it,
1: the, as I showed you the diagnostic criteria, is black and white. They have diabetes, they have prediabetes, or they have neither. But it's, so a touch of the sugar is really not a thing. Um, so I think you know what, what the patient should be told is you have a serious chronic illness for which there is no cure. However, you can live a normal life if you take charge of this disease and you manage it based on our recommendations. So I think that's the message I need to hear. It's a good news, bad news. Oh, good thing we found this out before any more time had gone by and damage was happening. But it, it's not going to go away, so you need to embrace this and befriend it and work with it. Don't fight against it. But this whole, you know, we always say diabetes affects the vision, the diabetic retinopathy. But I think it affects the ears too, and they just don't hear the word, you know. And who, who wants to hear that? Nobody wants to hear those words. But I think that we need to be very clear with our patients. It, it's black and white. Yes, indeed, you do have diabetes. You're taking medicine for your diabetes. Um, it's not just borderline or a touch of the sugar. It truly is, you know, a chronic illness. But is, that's a fascinating comment. On thank you for that.
0: Please. I just wanted to add something that I saw that I thought was really interesting. Um, On my school nurse rotation, I saw a seven-year-old girl who kept her own journal, wrote down all of her sugars,
1: gave herself her insulin pen all by herself. I mean, her Mm -hmm. mom helps her, but she'd been doing it since she was three. And she came to the nurse's office every time, brought it all with her, took it all Mm out, set it all up, did it all. And it was really impressive Mm -hmm. to see a seven-year-old being completely independent with their diabetes care and managing it well, whereas a lot of adults Mm -hmm. can't or won't. (laughs) Fabulous comment. Thank you for that. Yet we see the seven-year-old, and then we see my 88-year-old guy who doesn't want his wife doing the insulin; he wants to do it himself. And then in the middle, 50-somethings, who I'm not going to give myself a shot. I hate needles. I I, I won't do needles. I, and so it, they're really wimpy. Those middle-aged adults are really wimpy. But and and so you know the whole insulin thing for adults. I think it's they've been told. You know, if you don't lose weight, you're going to get a needle. That's sort of the, what they hear, and whether that's what's said or not, I don't know. I'm not in that office, but but it, you know, that's sort of what patients hear. So they they're it feels like a threat to them. It feels like a last resort. It feels like they're a failure if they need to go to insulin, which is not true. Insulin is a fabulous treatment when the time is right, and they really should be on it. But people hear that. Just yesterday, I saw a fellow in his 50s who drives a big um, tractor trailer. Uh, and one of the requirements for a commercial driver's license is that you cannot take insulin. Wow. It doesn't matter if you're type 1 or type 2, because of the risk of hypoglycemia behind the wheel of a big rig, you cannot take insulin. So this fellow has had type 2 diabetes for 30 years, and he takes only gliburide because he's intolerant of metformin. His, he went to his doctor recently um, who prescribed Victoza for him, which is one of the new injectables that helps him to make more insulin, make less glucagon, suppress his appetite a little bit, slow his uh, gastric emptying. Great new medicine, which is wonderful. It is a shot, helps people lose weight a little bit. So people are a lot more willing to do that one than they are to do insulin, which can cause weight gain. Um, But anyway, his doctor prescribed metformin. He went to the pharmacy, gave him a prescription. The pharmacist told him, that's insulin. It is not insulin. It's an injectable, but it is not insulin. So he ripped up the prescription didn't take it. So, when I saw him the other day, I said to him, Look, it is not insulin, and the CDL thing allows you to take Victoza or Paeda. As long as you're not taking a sulfonylurea with it, that is a legitimate treatment for people who drive big trucks. I went back later yesterday, and I don't know who else to talk to him in the meantime, but he said, You know what? I'm going to give up my license and do insulin because it's the time. The time is right, which I don't know what miracle occurred between those two visits, but anyway, I'm happy for him that he. Made that decision, but anyway. So you're absolutely right. Kids are great with it. Um, older people are great with it. It's just middle-aged folks that are just so. Oh, I don't want the needle. You know, you have to brush your teeth. Nobody likes to brush their teeth, but we do it because we have to do it. When you need insulin, you need insulin. You, you, nobody likes it, but you have to do it. It's the same kind of thing. I gastric bypass, so I don't have diabetes anymore. <laughs> there you go. Know. Oh boy, it's a tough disease, you know. And I have great admiration for people who live with it day in and day out. I go home at five o'clock or something at six o'clock, and I don't have it at my house. Knock on wood. But uh, so it's it's not an easy road to hold, But the the um, like I said, embracing the treatment is going to result in much better outcomes than denying it, ignoring it, fighting against it tolerating really high sugars because you, you just feel better there. So um, so I, you know, for our patients, I, I think that they have a, a challenge and a daily burden. And I admire people who do that. And um, so I think for us as nurses to uh, give our patients the encouragement and the support that they need and the right information and the right resources is really the key. So thank you very much for your attention and all your questions. And I thank you for coming.